course, uh, your friends are always welcome here, Ian. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church. Well, let's take our Bibles and we will turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I'm going to take a pretty big bite out of the book of Hebrews today. We're going to go through the entire seventh chapter. Some of you are saying, oh no. I've seen pastor take a whole hour on one verse. How's he going to pull this off? Here's the dilemma. Sometimes when you come to a passage, you have to kind of park it and look at the tree. But sometimes when you come to a passage, if you just look at the tree, you're going to miss the forest. Today, we're going to look at the forest. And what we're going to see is a tremendous passage of Scripture that shares with us the superiority of our Lord's priesthood. And what that means for us, there's an important application in this passage for us, and we're going to see that as we come to the close of the seventh chapter. Now, the beginning of the chapter is going to talk a lot about Melchizedek. We've seen him introduced a couple of times in the book of Hebrews, and uh, What's interesting about Melchizedek is this. He only appears in a couple of passages in the Old Testament. And yet, here in the book of Hebrews, more information, more revelation is given us concerning him. And it's a fascinating study. So let me encourage you this morning. Put on your thinking caps because uh, we're going to really move through this passage. But in addition to that, understand the importance of the Old Testament. Understand that even an obscure person from just basically three sentences in the Old Testament can have an important part in the New Testament, and we're going to see that this morning. Before we get into the text, though, let's have a word of prayer, and listen, this time you can stay seated during the prayer, you know, unlike during the course. I'm kidding. <laughs> he got you on that one, didn't he? <laughs> let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Word of God. We are blessed to have this revelation so readily accessible to us. We would ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. As we go through this text, Lord, may we see this building discussion about the greatness of Christ being our high priest and what that means for us. And Lord, may we be blessed by the passage that we look into this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come to this text, we find, first of all, an examination of Melchizedek's priesthood. And what we find as we look at this is that in the first two verses, the Word of God shares with us how Melchizedek exemplifies something that's very important, the idea of a priest and a king. And what we want to see as we go through this text is this. Jesus Christ, as the Messiah, occupies an important place as a priest, a king, and a prophet. These three descriptions are really descriptions of a coming Messiah, and Jesus Christ fulfills all three. Now, Melchizedek is an interesting character from the Old Testament because when we look into the text we find that he's mentioned in this passage as a person who was a priest and a king. Look at what we find. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. 
He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. So what we want to see first about this important character is the fact that Melchizedek is both a priest and a king. Now, this is brought out so clearly in this passage, but before we do that, I want to discuss typology with you. What in the world is typology? When we refer to typology in the theological circles, it refers to a picture of another truth, a deeper truth, and the person that's a type of another person is an actual character. They're not fictitious, but they're going to portray an important truth about Jesus Christ or an important New Testament truth, and that's why they're so important. What we find here in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Melchizedek was an actual person who lived in an actual place. He had an actual encounter with Abraham. But there's more to Melchizedek than just that snippet in time. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. He pictures for us some important truths about Jesus Christ, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is bringing out in these first two verses. Now, when he talks about this encounter with Abraham here in these first two verses, we find that in the Old Testament, Melchizedek, as I said, is just mentioned a couple of times. The first time we meet him is at a very brief encounter with Abraham, and we find in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, the following. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. That's all we find. You see, Abraham had gone and conquered some kings that had kidnapped his nephew Lot, and he just annihilates them, takes all of their stuff, and when he gets all of their stuff, he gives one-tenth of it to Melchizedek, and that's all we find in the book of Genesis. And yet, here in the Word of God, we find an important truth about Melchizedek that's easily passed over, and that is this. He was a priest of the Most High God. Now, this is the unusual thing. Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and he was in a Canaanite city, a pagan city. Later, we'll know that city as the city of Jerusalem. That's what Salem was, Jerusalem was called in the Old Testament, Salem. But here he is as this, this priest and as this king, and that's all that's really said about it. The idea that we build, and we'll see this more as we go through the seventh chapter, is that God had appointed Melchizedek a priest. And God had done that for a very specific reason. He had done that because Melchizedek would be representative of an entirely different priesthood, one that was set apart from the Old Testament Levite priests, one that would be a priest forever, and it was a picture for us of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. We're going to see why that was important in just a few moments. But here the Word of God shows us this glimpse. Now, I was supposed to have Psalm 
chapter 110, verse 4 in this next slide. But once again, my brain was in vacation mode. So I put two copies of the same passage. If you want to look in your outlines, though, it is there. I did manage to get it into your outlines. And look at what Psalm 110.4 says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, here we find another passage of Scripture that talks about the priesthood of Melchizedek. And what we find in Psalm 110 is a very important messianic passage. As a matter of fact, much of the 110th Psalm is quoted in the book of Hebrews because it was looking forward to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what the Word of God wanted us to understand is this. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is attached to an eternal priesthood, but a very different kind of priesthood. One that is appointed by God rather than one that is brought through your lineage. And we're going to see that as we go through this chapter. Something else. The name of Melchizedek is significant. Here, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, notice what the writer of Hebrews keys in on. He calls him the king of righteousness. It comes from two Hebrew words. Melech, meaning king, and Sedek, meaning righteousness. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness. That's what his name means. How is that descriptive of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's crystal clear, isn't it? Jesus Christ is the ultimate one in righteousness. Later in the text, he's called holy and blameless and pure. Jesus Christ lived righteousness. In fact, was righteousness incarnate because he is God. But then, notice where he rules. He's the king of Salem. The writer of Hebrews points out the meaning of the word Salem. It's from the same root word as shalom. What does shalom mean in the original Hebrew? Peace. So Jesus Christ is not only the king of righteousness, but he is also the king of peace. Think about what the scripture says, how he's the prince of peace. How he brings peace with God. This picture that we have of Melchizedek in the Old Testament is a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why the writer of Hebrews is going back into the Old Testament, into the Genesis passage, also into this passage in Psalm 110 to help us understand that this individual pictures Jesus Christ. But then we come to the third verse. And when we find the third verse, we find a very confusing and controversial verse for many. Verse 3 says, Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now what is this saying? There are some that have taken the third verse and they've said, well, obviously Melchizedek must have been Jesus before he came into the manger and was born and lived among us. He's a pre-incarnate person dwelling in Salem. I have an issue with that because that would, have mean, that would mean that the first advent is actually the second advent. That Christmas is kind of a day late and a dollar short because he's already lived as Melchizedek. I, 
I just can't see that in the Word of God. I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing is looking at the information that we have about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And what he's saying is this. Look, we don't have a record of when he was born, when he died. We don't have a record of how long his priesthood listed. He's lasted. He, he, he's just put in there, and, and, and that's all we know. And what he's doing is taking the idea that he didn't have all of this lineage and genealogy and his father and mother weren't mentioned, just that he was a priest of the Most High God. And the idea is God appointed him priest because God chose to make him priest. And God didn't give us information about when that priesthood began or ended, so therefore it's open-ended. And what he's doing is he's building an argument for a little bit later that Jesus Christ is in that same order. That same kind of priest. He is a priest because God has made him a priest, not because of lineage. You see, bear in mind, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrews. And when they're thinking in terms of a priest, you know what they're thinking in terms of? The Levites. They were descendants of a tribe of Israel. They were all priests. And basically you were born into the priesthood. If you were a Levite, you're a priest. Pure and simple. Now when we look at the history of the Levites, corruption, they had some bad priests. Horrible priests. Certainly didn't qualify as godly people. They were priests by virtue of their birth. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is setting apart Melchizedek and that whole idea of priesthood appointed by God. And what he's saying is this. Look, a person is a priest when he's qualified to be a priest. And Melchizedek was qualified by God, appointed by God. And that order lives forever. Then we go on. We come to verses 4 through 10. And we see an examination of Melchizedek's priesthood, and we see that it really pictures Christ. And the writer of Hebrews starts off with evidence that Melchizedek indeed was a priest after the Most High God and superior to the Levites. So let's look at this passage. We, by the way, the slide isn't syncing up with the outline for some reason. This should say the excellence of Melchizedek's priesthood and then evidence that he is a priest superior to the Levite priests. Don't ask me what I did. I, I, you know what? I think I was on Benadryl, actually, when I <laughs> did these slides. <laughs> I've been having these allergic reactions to things and take Benadryl in my mind, uh, you know. Thankfully, I'm not on it right now. So... <laughs> Let's look at this. What are some evidences that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Christ? Let's look. Verse 4 says this, Just think how great he was. I know what I did. I didn't advance the slide far enough. There we go. Maybe I am on Benadryl. At any rate, <laughs> look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of his plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who became priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. 
This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. What's being said here? What he's doing, first of all, is comparing the idea of a tithe or a tenth. When Melchizedek came, remember the story? Abraham defeated all of these kings. Melchizedek comes to bless him. You know what Abraham did? He recognized the priesthood of Melchizedek. And he gave him a tenth of everything that he took in the victory. You know what he was doing? He was recognizing the spiritual authority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, the writer of Hebrews brings out that, hey, the Levites also collected a tenth as well. But then he goes on to build this argument. Levi was a descendant of Abraham. So, in essence, Levi was in Abraham's DNA. And so, in essence, he paid a tithe to Melchizedek by being a descendant of Abraham. So, what he's saying is Melchizedek is superior to the Levites. Look at how the passage develops this line of reasoning. After it says, This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. This is verse 6. Yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. So what it's saying is, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham, and Abraham was greater than his descendants, the Levites, so that makes Melchizedek greater than his descendants. You see the line of reasoning, the line of argument. That's what he's building. And it says this, In the one case, the tenth is collected by men who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. So do you see the argument? The writer of Hebrews is saying Melchizedek is superior to Levi and the Levites because their ancestor, Abraham, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, why all of this history? What's with the history lesson and Levites and Melchizedek and all that? Melchizedek pictures Jesus Christ. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying to these Hebrews, look, You've been in a religious system most of your lives that has looked forward to the ultimate priest, the Messiah. Leave that religious system behind and recognize the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't need priests anymore. That's the message that he's saying to them. You don't need priests anymore. You have the only priest that you need. It's Jesus Christ. That's a strong message, isn't it? All of their heritage, all of that background, that would be a hard thing for them to leave behind. So the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, look, even before the priests came on the scene, there was an order of priesthood that superseded his, that of Melchizedek. And you worship a priest that's in that same order. One that God appointed. One that God called. One that God identifies. So leave that behind. And you know, it's so easy for us to get caught up in religious systems that we don't think about who Jesus is. 
how He completely saves us. We don't need the trappings of ritual and works and religion in order to have a relationship with God because we have the ultimate priest, Jesus Christ, who makes us right with God, who acts as our go-between between us and God. He's all we need. And that's what this writer is bringing out crystal clear in this passage. Look at verse 11. The text goes on to talk about how this old priesthood was a priesthood with limitations. When we look at verse 11, and we'll read it through the 17th verse, look at what the text says. The Scripture says, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of the law was given to people, why was there still a need for another priest to come? So here's this point. God sets up this religious system with the Levitical priesthood, and if that's going to be sufficient for all time, why in the world in the 110th Psalm, this messianic psalm, Why in the world did God say, look, there's going to come another priest that's going to be a priest forever? What the writer of Hebrews is doing is being very logical. He's saying, look, if if the Levitical priesthood would have been good for all time, God wouldn't have promised another one that's going to come. We need this new one more than we need the old system. And and this is what we as human beings do, don't we? We hold on to something that, hey, I'm, I'm comfortable with this. I've always been raised with this. This is what I'm used to. I don't want to let it go when God has something so much better for us. We don't look to the Word of God. We look to tradition. We look to feelings. We look to other things. But God has something real for us in Christ Jesus. And this is what He's saying to the Levites. Look, that was designed by God to last for a time. It has pictures of Christ. But now the true priest, Jesus Christ, is on the scene. We don't need this anymore. The writer talks about this new order in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Verse 12, for when there is a change in priesthood, there must also be a change in the law. So what the writer of Hebrews now is really driving home the point, look, I'm not just talking about priests here. I'm talking about the entire system of the law. That because I have changed from the Levites to Melchizedek, the requirements of the law have also changed. You see, for the Jewish people of the first century, there was the concept that I have to do enough good stuff for God to look at me and say, you've behaved obediently and righteously, so therefore you're saved. But you know what? That was never true. That was never right. People had taken the requirements that God had given in the law and built a religious system around them that was communicating something totally untrue. And what we need to understand is people still do that today, don't they? How many people have you talked to who say, you know, I try to observe the Ten Commandments. If I hit more of them than I don't, then God will be okay with that. Kind of a pan scale there, you know. Good stuff outweighs the bad stuff, then you win. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that if there's a pan scale, the standard is absolute perfection. 
one sin tips the scale. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the old system is set aside. We have something new in this new priesthood. There's a change of the law. Look at verse 13. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe. Now, here was an objection in the first century that many had to Jesus Christ being Messiah. Messiah should be prophet, priest, king. What tribe did the priests come from in the Old Testament? Levi. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. You see, God had made a promise to David that there would be one of his descendants on the throne forever. So the Messiah would have to be from the tribe of Judah, but yet he was to be a priest. How do we reconcile that? You can't be from two tribes. Here's how we reconcile it. Descendant of David, priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So that's why this passage is so important. It's a polemic, an argument against the Jews who were trying to find a reason to reject Jesus Christ. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't go there. He meets the qualifications in spades. He is a descendant of David, but he's a priest of a greater order than any of the Levitical orders. He's exceeded everything that is required of him. There are no limitations. The passage continues. Verse 13 says, He of whom these things were said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulations as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared, and here's that quotation from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Brilliant argument. A beautiful presentation of the authority of Jesus Christ to be Messiah, to be our King, to be our priest. Prophet plus priest plus king equals Messiah. That's the idea that we're finding in this text. Now when we come to the last part of this passage, we find the eternality of our Savior's priesthood. The statement that closes that previous paragraph, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, is amplified as we come to verse 18. And here, the Word of God talks about how Jesus Christ exchanged the old covenant for a new one, a better one. So let's look at what the text says, verse 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. And why was it weak and useless? The law made nothing perfect. Could this be any clearer? No one is made perfect by the law. We all fail. There's only one person who completely, totally observed the righteous requirements of the law, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. If we try to be right with God, 
by saying that I have done enough righteous things for God to accept me, we fall short. There needs to be a different covenant. And that's what we find as this text goes on. After it says, for the law made nothing perfect, verse 19, it goes on to say this, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. The law could never bring you near to God. No matter how good you tried to be, no matter how perfect you try to live, you fall short. And when we fall short, that's called sin. And when we sin, that builds a chasm between us and God that we can't cross. We can't jump across it. We can't do anything. That chasm exists. But here's the wonder of God's Word. God made a provision for us in Jesus Christ. Notice the 20th verse. It was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath. But he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Why is Jesus' priesthood so superior? God made him the priest and promised him an eternal priesthood. And then it all comes together in verse 22. Look very carefully at that verse. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Wow. We now have the opportunity to draw near to God. We now have the opportunity to be made right with God because of a new covenant. The old one condemned, the new one brings us to the place of forgiveness and experience of right relationship with God. And that's what this text is bringing out. He is the guarantee of that covenant. You know what it means when it says that He's the guarantee? The, the word in the original Greek means surety. It's the idea of taking money and putting it down and saying, this is the surety that I'll follow through with this business proposition. Jesus Christ is that surety for us. Not what we have done, but what He did. That's what makes us right with God. And isn't that freeing? Man, if I had to look at my life and say, I'm going to stack up the good things against the bad things, I'm hoping I might skew more toward the good things, but I've still got some bad stuff on there. One bad thing, and it blows me out of the water. But, when I go according to the new covenant, those bad things are forgiven by Jesus Christ. And I'm made right with God. And that's where we come to the next point. Jesus Christ eternally lives as our intercessor. Look at verse 23. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. In other words, the Levites, they come and go. You get good ones, you get bad ones. But they're here today, gone tomorrow. But contrast that with Jesus' priesthood. Verse 24. But because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. In other words, 
we have a permanent best priest. I don't have to look and say, man, I hope we get a good one this time because the last one kind of stunk. I don't have to go there. I look and say, I have a priest in Jesus Christ who is my go-between between me and God forever. That's point one. But then the text goes on. Verse 25. And listen, if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this verse. Memorize it. Underline it. Whatever you do to highlight it, this is tremendous. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Wow. The idea of Jesus Christ saving us completely. You know what that word complete means? Forever. For all time. Thoroughly. It carries with it the idea of altogether. So here's what the Scripture is saying. When Jesus Christ delivers us from sin, nothing needs to be added to it. In fact, nothing can be added to it. It is complete. So, my salvation rests in the work of Jesus Christ. Do you know how insulting it is to God for me to say, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but let me contribute a little bit. Let me do this. I want to pay part of my way. I've used this illustration before, but it pictures it so well for us. Somebody gave you a mansion and said, here it is. This is your mansion, my gift to you. And you pulled out a penny and said, no, I can't let you give it to me. Here's a penny. I want to contribute something. What kind of contribution is that? Nothing. We need to see the same thing is true for us as far as our salvation. Jesus Christ provided our salvation by His death on the cross. And that payment was so great, it completely saves us. But not only are we talking past salvation that He completely saves us, we're talking present ministry. Do you recognize that Jesus Christ intercedes for you? Now what does that mean that He intercedes for me? He's praying for you on a consistent basis. He's speaking on your behalf. We find this passage in 1 John. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Here's what it means. Rob Wheeler's going along and he blows it. I've trusted Christ as my Savior, but I step out of God's moral boundaries. I transgress. Satan accuses me before the throne and says, you see what that person who claims to be a Christian just did? Jesus speaks up and says, I died for that person. My blood applies to him. He's completely saved. He is our intercessor our go-between, our representative, our advocate before the Father. That's what the priesthood of Jesus Christ means for you and for me. We have one who saves us and makes us right with God. 
Final point. He eliminated the penalty for our sins. When we come to verse 26, the Scripture very simply says this, such a high priest meets our need. Isn't that a beautiful way of saying this? Not is meeting our need. He has met our need. But he continues to meet that need. Happened in the past, continues in the present. Jesus Christ did that for us. He meets our need. And look at how he's described. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted to the heavens. Jesus Christ met all of the righteous requirements of God. But then he ascended to the heavens and is seated at the right hand of God, which demonstrates his victory over sin. He could not be seated at the right hand of God had he not paid for every one of our sins. He's seated at the right hand of God above in the heavens. Look at verse 27. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of people. Now look at this. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Let me ask you something. When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, how many of your sins were future? All of them, right? So every sin that you have committed, that you may commit today, that you will commit in the future, how many of those come under the blood of Jesus Christ? All of them. He suffered for our sins once and for all. He doesn't have to suffer again and again and again and again. The sufficiency of our forgiveness was taken care of at Calvary on the cross. Once and for all. So that when we come to Christ, that forgiveness takes care of past, present, future sins. Now that doesn't mean we have carte blanche, that we turn around and we sin as much as we want to because, hey, it's under the blood, I can do what I want to do. You haven't really understood the sacrifice of Jesus Christ if that's your attitude. But it does mean completion, confidence before God that I stand right with him. You see, I don't have to worry day to day. Boy, did I step out of line so much that now I'm no longer in relationship with God? That would be a scary thought. Do I have to worry that that moment of doubt that I had because I heard a professor or watched a show on the History Channel that, that questions the validity of Scripture, that uh, now, now I've, I've lost it? No. He saves us completely. Some versions translate this to the uttermost. We have complete salvation. We are right with God because we come to God through Jesus Christ, which is talking about faith. Taking God at his word, trusting him, that brings us into this right relationship with God. Closing thought. For the law appoints as priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Not that Jesus was ever imperfect, but what it's talking about is the completion of the mission that God had called him to do, the salvation of our souls, making us right with God. Jesus' work on the cross is no way incomplete. So you know what that means? Your salvation, my salvation, is in no way incomplete either. It is complete because of Jesus Christ. 
Let me encourage you this morning. Think about your go-between, Jesus Christ. So much superior to a human system that says, hey, it's works that make you right with God. How do you know if you've ever hit the bar or gone under the bar or over the bar? You can't know. But when I count on the perfection of Jesus Christ for my salvation, when I turn from my sin to Him and trust that His provision on the cross is sufficient, I can have confidence. We can all have confidence. Let's give thanks to God for that truth. Gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You for this text.